Hey friends, you're listening to That's What She Did podcast and I'm your host, Tangi Renee. I'm so excited to bring you this pre-season bonus episode featuring four dynamic and impactful Latina leaders in observance of Latinx Heritage Month. I was thrilled for the opportunity to partner with History Colorado and their Year of La Chicana program to create the Movement Makers live panel discussion. It's a panel elevating Latina leaders who are creating change and amplifying justice around vital community issues. And we're happy to be able to offer this special episode uninterrupted, no ads. Now you don't need to be from Colorado to learn about these inspiring women and the work they do every day to fight for justice. Everyone can learn something here. We talk about the movements they're creating, why now is the vital time to amplify your own voice and take action, and the impact they intend to create in the world. We touch on the important issues of body autonomy, gentrification, what it means to be a quote-unquote controversial woman, and so much more. You don't want to miss this. If you're an inspiration junkie like me, you're going to love it. Be prepared to be inspired. Now, don't forget to subscribe so you can come back and join us for season six, the She Wrote That series, launching on October 16th. It's going to be so good. You're going to love it. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to our Movement Makers panel, which is a culmination of History Colorado's year-long initiative, Year of La Chicana. And this has been a community-driven program, a directive really born out of the desire to honor Colorado Chicanas, past, present, and future, and to share her story with a wide range of communities. Tonight's program listens to the story of current movement makers and asks us all to reflect on the ways that we too are invited to build upon, amplify, and create change in our communities. I welcome here tonight Councilwoman Candy Cidavaca, Executive Director of Color, Dusty Guruli, the President of Colorado's AFL-CIO, Josette Jaravillo, and the Vice President of Habitat for Humanities, Community and Government Partnerships, Maria Sepulveda. And tonight's host, of course, Tangea Estrada of That's What She Did podcast, which has been featured in publications such as USA Today, Bustle, and the Identity of She magazine, and works to amplify the voices of brilliant women. I am Marisa Volpi. My pronouns are she and her. I work in equity and engagement at History Colorado. Throughout tonight's program, should you have questions or comments, we invite you to share those in our chat box and we will respond as we are able. From now until election day, History Colorado Center is free every weekend. Explore floors of our in-depth exhibitions, compelling art, and kid-friendly programs about democracy. Our partnership with the Latino Cultural Arts Center, Echo en Colorado, awaits you as well. And as we begin tonight, it is in the spirit of healing and education, we acknowledge the 48 contemporary tribes with historic ties to the state of Colorado. These tribes are our partners. We consult with them when we plan exhibits, collect, preserve, and interpret artifacts, do archeological work, and create educational programs. We recognize these indigenous people as the original inhabitants of this land. And without further ado, Tangia. 
Thank you, Marisa. It's such a pleasure to be partnering with History Colorado to bring this live event, which is also doubling as a live podcast recording event. So for those people that miss it tonight or want to replay, you can go to That's What She Did podcast and you can get it in audio format and listen to it in your car or while you're doing your dishes or walking your dog. That's the beauty of podcasts. I'm so excited to be here to present these wonderful, dynamic leaders in the Colorado community and beyond for you. Before we get there, let me tell you a little bit about the podcast because I would be remiss if I did not. That's What She Did podcast is a show about the women leaders, innovators, and rebels that you probably don't already know. With an emphasis on elevating the work and impact of women of color, we like to curate the stories of brilliant women, the women that mainstream media and mainstream society tend to overlook. This is a perfect partnership with History Colorado and Year of La Chicana to amplify the work of some of our local community leaders, what they're doing right now that will hopefully bring the community together and push us forward more progressively. I would like to introduce now more formally each one of our panelists today. First up, in no particular order, Maria Sepulveda. Again, she is the Vice President of Community and Government Partnerships for Habitat for Humanity of Metro Denver. Maria leads Habitat for Humanity Advocacy Program, collaborating with community and government partnerships in the furtherance of the organization's mission and vision. She manages the government grants and contracts team is responsible for advancing Habitat's community development strategy. Thank you for being here tonight, Maria. Up next, I'd like to introduce Josette Jaramillo. She is the president of the Colorado AFL-FIO. She was born and raised in the east side of Pueblo, Colorado, and became the first LGBTQ person and first woman of color to serve as president of Colorado's branch of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, the largest federation of unions in the United States. She's also a senior caseworker with Pueblo, Colorado's Department of Child Welfare and works every day to serve some of the state's most vulnerable populations. Welcome, Josette, and thank you as well for being here. Next, I'd like to formally introduce Councilwoman Candy C. DeBaca, Denver City Councilwoman with District 9. Candy is a proud fifth generation native of Northeast Denver, Colorado, and a graduate of Manuel High School in the University of Denver. She's also the first LBGTQ plus Latina and first democratic socialist to serve on Denver City Council and has a prominent voice in Denver on social justice issues. Welcome Councilwoman, thank you as well for joining us. And last, and certainly not least, Dusty Grule. Dusty serves as Executive Director for Color and Color Action Fund. She's a leader with more than 25 years of nonprofit and community engagement experience, having built nationally recognized civic engagement and political leadership programs like Colorado Latina Latino Advocacy Day, and Latinas increasing political strength. Dusty also previously served for six years as an Obama appointee. Welcome, Dusty, and thank you for joining us. Thank you all as well, all the attendees that are joining us here live and who will be in the future catching the replay. We realize that you could be spending your time anywhere. We appreciate that you're choosing to spend it with us here tonight. Let's go ahead and jump right into the key questions because that's why we're all here to talk about the incredible work that these movement makers are doing, the impact that they're having and what we can do with that information, how we can all become more involved. So the first question I'd like to ask, we'll go ahead and start with Dusty. Dusty, what brings you to this work and what's so important about it to you? Well, I was blessed to have grown up in the Chicano movement. And so my parents and my family were involved in the crusade for justice. My uncle Corky, my aunt Jerry, 
my uncle Corky was the founder and leader. And so my family was a part of that. So I was blessed to be able to spend the first 11 years of my life there at the Escuela Tatelolco and the Crusade for Justice. So I was born into social justice and this strong belief that I still carry with me in my work around self-determination and bodily autonomy. And so I think the work that I do now with Colod, the work that we do now is so critical to work of that bodily autonomy, reproductive rights, self-determination over what decisions we make for our reproductive health, right? But also with social justice. So how we show up in community and how we utilize that to change culture, to destigmatize all of the stigma that our communities face. Oftentimes women are those most disproportionately impacted by a lot of that stigma, women, trans, women of color. And so that I think right there is what is so critical for us, but there's something we can do about it. And I have lots to say about that. <laughs> we'll get into it for sure. I would love for all of our panelists to answer this question as well. So whoever would like to volunteer next to answer, what brings you to this work? What's so important about it for you? I'll chime in. You know, I wasn't born into um, social justice in the way that Dusty shared, but I was definitely the beneficiary of my family's, my parents, my grandparents work to afford me so many opportunities. And as I worked as an attorney, I kind of created all these opportunities for me that I was able to take, but it was pretty quick that I could see how few people like me were sitting around the tables that I was working on and how few people who look like me were gaining the social and economic opportunities that I was working for. And um, it wasn't too long before I changed my focus to community development work and tried to use some of what I had learned to benefit more people who look like me. And I learned quickly that there were keys to ownership for our own destiny and our own future and leadership. You know, we have Councilman Sidabaka as an example. Education, you know, Dusty has played a huge part in my children's education through Escuela Tatalolco, but just having education, not just of books, but about who you are and ownership and self-determination, financially speaking. And so that is what brought me to this work. That's what keeps me here. Same. I'll jump in. I was definitely born into the struggle. My great grandma was a sharecropper and my mom was a single mom. And so coming from a very matriarchal family, you know, I was taught from the very beginning to take care of my family, to take care of anyone and everyone around me um, so that we could all make it and all survive. And I was fortunate enough to be the first person in my family to even graduate from high school, let alone go on to college. And so I got really politicized in college and really started to see the inequities in the experience I had and was determined to make sure that I came and spread that knowledge, told everybody I could encounter the truth about the system and how it was rigged. And that really led me to the path that I'm on now as a social worker and a community organizer. Every career move or career space that I've been in has really been out of necessity because community put me in those spaces because we needed an advocate. We needed somebody to fight for us. And having been the first in so many ways and been privileged to go on and get my education and get access that others didn't, it's always been an obligation that I've been really determined to uphold and pay back on. And so that's what brought me to my work here. Thank you. Josette, would you mind chiming in there? 
Yeah, you know, the weird thing about Zoom is I can't like point at anybody and be like, you go instead of me because you guys are all in different spaces on your own screen. But, you know, when I actually reflect and I look back at my life, I've always been an organizer. You know, we were leading walkouts in high school because they got rid of our block schedule. And we thought that was something that was really important, you know, through our high school lives. But I didn't think about it as organizing. I'm just like, hey, like, instead of, you know, going to the prairies and acting like fools, let's head down to the admin building and have a conversation about how this affects our future. So I've been able to kind of reflect a lot about my life. I've always been an agitator. I've always been a rebel. I actually have the word rebel tattooed on my wrist. So when you mentioned rebel, I just kind of like chuckled because my boss was not happy when I got that tattoo. It rings true through my life. So, you know, being in a union and getting my first big girl job where I had like healthcare and benefits and a union, you know, I didn't get active right away. I got active the way a lot of people do. I needed help. So I got that help and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then, you know, I started canvassing and talking to my coworkers. I'm like, this is super fun because, you know, like as a kid, they could never shut me up. I wanted to talk to everybody. So for me, it was just really like a duck on water. I'm like, this is what I was meant to do. But looking back on my life, it's what I've always done. And it just feels like the right thing to do, making sure that, you know, workers have their pension protected and their benefits protected. They have rights on the job and due process, making sure that workers are safe and really leading the change at a statewide level has been the honor of my life. And just something I think like that just suits me really well. Like I have a lot of fun doing it. I hear that. That resonates, I think, for me, probably for all of the panelists as well, and I'm sure many of our listeners. This is for those of us that are called difficult, I think. (laughs) Let's move on to the next question. So I would like to direct this first question to the councilwoman. And if anybody else would like to chime in afterwards, please feel free to do so. So councilwoman, movement makers, leaders are often viewed as controversial or polarizing in some way, which seems to me at least to be particularly acute if that movement maker, that leader happens to be a woman and especially if she happens to be a woman of color. Why do you think that is? And how have you seen that play out for you personally? I always, when I hear that kind of thing or when I'm called divisive or controversial, I always think about one of my heroes, uh, Shirley Chisholm. And her tagline or her motto was that she was unbought and unbossed. And I think that that is what makes me controversial or polarizing in the space that I live in. When I talk about being put in my work by community, I mean it. I mean it in every way. There was no rings to be kissed that I kissed to get my seat. There were no big fancy donors that I was tied to. And so my community with their small dollars, with their door knocking, with their labor, put me in this space. And so in my policy making decisions, I don't feel beholden to anybody but them. And that's a non-traditional group of people to be beholden to. It's the marginalized people of our society. And so when we see leaders centering the margins, it feels like a threat to the status quo. It feels like a threat to the current power structure. And so I think that that is why I traditionally push back on that because it's not about being divisive. It's about bending the arc toward justice. And some people are very uncomfortable with that. 
But most people who know me beyond the salacious media pieces, they know that I'm one of the most transparent, accessible, and visionary people to work with. I want to figure out a way for us to all win. And I believe that there is an abundance of everything and we can all win. And so to have that kind of paradigm or worldview is often a little bit, I guess it rubs people the wrong way. But well-behaved women never make history, right? As they say, as we've seen. Great. Thank you. Would anybody else like to add to that about, you know, being viewed as controversial in any way? I think that every woman on this panel has been called controversial or difficult or stubborn, aggressive, you know, throw out some other adjectives that they use to describe us. So I think any time women rise beyond the ranks where they where we generally haven't been in spaces, we get those fun little taglines. And, and I wear them like a badge of honor. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm difficult. Ask my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Would anybody else like to add on? I, I would just add that, I mean, we live in a patriarchal society. We were all socialized to not revere people who look like us. So I think what's important is, yes, it's exhausting. And yes, we have different standards, I guess, put on us, especially for in leadership positions that we have to perform, outperform. I mean, even look at the pay gap, right? But I think it's important that we figure out how we rise above that. And I think, so I appreciate what you do, Tangia, with your podcast and finding your people, finding those circles of support because it's important and it can be lonely, especially as an executive director, those of you who've led organizations, sometimes super, super stressful job. But know that there are people that have your back and that there are ways to celebrate that. And again, I think, Maria, you mentioned the importance of um, knowing who you are and where you came from. Part of that is like having people that know that too. So yeah, I'll just quickly say, I think that the sentiment is a reaction to the fact there's more of us at the table now. Not enough. I am not saying there are enough of us, but you know, the more of us, you know, you look at city council in Denver, you look at, you know, the more of us that are showing up, look at AOC and the group that wasn't at the table before. And just by virtue of our very existence, you know, it's like, don't even open your mouth. You're already controversial. So um, we have to embrace that. Like Josette said, we need to embrace that and we need to keep on recruiting more <laughs> so that they just, you know, you're just going to have to get used to this, right? Exactly. Love it. Thank you for such great answers. The next question I'd like to direct to Dusty. And of course, if anybody would like to add anything on, please feel free to do so. So Dusty, my question is around body autonomy and specifically that term. Why is it so important? I think when we think of reproductive rights, it becomes immediately controversial. It becomes immediately divisive. It doesn't necessarily have to. And what we're really talking about is autonomy over one's own body. A person being able to make choices about the most personal thing that they have, their body. Why is it so important, first of all, that we use the term body autonomy and people learn what that means? I mean, I mentioned the patriarchy that we live in and the misogyny constantly that we're faced with. And I think if this conversation had to do with men's bodily autonomy, it would be a different conversation. We wouldn't even be talking about it. So I think it's important because at the very root of any kind of economic justice, like if you don't have the resources, the information to 
have children if you want to have as many as you want to be able to raise them in a safe, equitable place. If you don't want to have children, if you have the comprehensive sex ed, if you have the ability to get what you need to not get pregnant, but if you do, to, you have the ability to get an abortion if you want that, if that's what you need for your health. It's a health issue. It's an economic justice issue. It's a, I mean, it's everything, right? I mean, everything that we are as the people in our family, it all starts there, like our moms, our aunts, our grandmas. I mean, my grandma didn't have the ability to space her pregnancies or to determine when she wanted to. She had 15 kids. And so she never learned to drive. Granted, my grandpa took care of her, but I always wonder what good her life had been. Sorry, I get emotional. <laughs> But I get emotional because this shit is still happening. You all saw the women in the detention centers who are who don't have the autonomy of their bodies. They're being sterilized without their consent. I mean, this is not Nazi Germany. This is fucking this country. Pardon my French. And so we're constantly under attack. And if you look at our ballot, which is one of the ways that people can engage and connect. And my staff that's on here, they're probably like, oh, here she goes, because they know I'm a crybaby when I get emotional. <laughs> because I believe so deeply about this work, right? I mean, there is still attack on our ballot that will create bans around abortion care. And who are the ones who are most impacted disproportionately? It's young people, immigrants, and low-income people and women of color. We always get the short end of the stick over it because it's still happening. And so we need to vote. We need to get connected with organizations that you believe in, volunteer, like get your people to understand the impacts that these issues have. I mean, our ballot is gonna be super long. Colorado, we always have really long ballots, but every single decision on there is gonna impact someone. I mean, it's something I always say is when we talk about policy decisions, that decision makers um, often make, there's a person on the other end of that. And so think of that person and don't put your judgment on, oh, well, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do that. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not up to the government, it's not up to you, it's not up to politicians to decide what someone does with their body, right? Like people should love who they wanna love, people should get the care that they need, whatever that care is. As you can tell, I believe deeply about it. <laughs> we hear you, thank you for sharing that i would add on to that you know every person on this call is an abolitionist in their own way we're all fighting for liberation and liberation from structures that perceive us as property and when we talk about body autonomy it's no different than when we were talking about freeing slaves slaves did not have autonomy over their body and they were utilized for their labor and to some degree what we fight now as women for bodily autonomy is directly connected to a time when we were perceived as property and our reproduction was either beneficial or detrimental to the economic structure of or the economic situation of the person we belonged to. And so when I hear that word bodily autonomy, you know, it's about freedom. It's about liberation in all of its forms. And what are our basic, I guess, purposes on this planet is to live out as free human beings. I hear that. Thank you.
The next question I want to ask is sort of a broad question. Anybody can jump in and answer it, um, but I think it'll be a nice segue into the next set of questions that I have. So public policy issues in this current climate are, or at least they feel, extremely divisive, all of them. And it seems like it doesn't matter if we're talking about affordable housing or healthcare or whatever issue is on the ballot, you name it, whatever issue is, is pressing for people right now, it all feels very divisive in this current climate. How has that impacted the work that you're trying to do? And what do you think is potentially a way through that divisiveness to more togetherness? I was thinking about that question. And I know that like the policy work that we all do overlaps so much. And for anybody who says that we're being divisive, I'm like, that's not who we are as people, right? Like who we are as people is we take care of one another. So when we're talking about, you know, worker rights and we're talking about collective bargaining, it's like nobody's trying to one-up you. We want you to have that too. We want you to be able to bargain for wages and benefits. You got to join us. We'll fight for you too. So it's not, I really try to get out of that us versus them conversation and really say like, we want everybody at the table. We want to build a longer table, not a taller wall. So like for me, it's really about kind of muddying through those conversations, having those conversations and talking about why, you know, these things are the right thing to do. Affordable healthcare, affordable housing, collective bargaining rights for workers, you know, all of those things are the right thing to do. And they certainly align with our mission as labor. And I'll say that I feel like I heard the same theme in Councilman Sidabaka's and Dusty's comment. And where I see breakthroughs, I wish I saw more of them, but where I do see breakthroughs is when we get down to the human being at the bottom of this, right? Somewhere along the line, and now I'm going to sound like an old lady, (laughs) with technology and short messaging and not having opportunities for togetherness, and I know here we are in COVID, so this is not easy, but somehow we've lost the concept of our humanity. And in those instances, in those glimmers where I can be sitting with someone who may have a different sign in front of their house than I do, in those moments where I'm sharing the story about someone who's, you know, suffered discrimination in their jobs and they can't feed their families or, you know, a lot of the housing situations that we're seeing or even criminal justice issues where people are being wrongfully treated. When you get down to that human element, when you're lucky enough to have time to start talking about our humanity is when I see those breakthroughs and a little break from the divisiveness. Honestly, I think the pregnant pause for us came from the fact that we're just right now feel like, I think a lot of us feel like we're under attack and there's no room for those spaces to connect around our humanity. And all I can say is that we just got to keep fighting for those moments. I mean, I feel like even as people define themselves progressives, right, we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to that intersectionality and what Josette mentioned about supporting one another, because... If the water rises, all the boats are going to (laughs) rise. And people don't live a single issue life. So if I'm having an issue with transportation, well, then I probably am going to have an issue with like my work and maybe I'm not making a livable wage. And, you know, so people are very complex and human. And I think that oftentimes decision makers, policy makers, 
They think, oh, this is my one issue. Well, that's nice, but that's not how reality is. And I think the most important part of that is holding those most, I don't like using the term vulnerable, those most disproportionately impacted at the center of that. Again, young people who oftentimes don't have the information to be able to make their own decisions, or again, immigrants and the anti-immigrant sentiment, women of color who historically and still are being targeted and controlled, having their bodily autonomy attacked and controlled. Going into decisions with that frame of mind, you're gonna benefit, everyone will benefit, right? So I'm still, I get frustrated, but I also made a note for you know this ballot initiative that we're defeating, which I'm very confident we will defeat, some of our partner or progressive peeps are like, oh, we can't take a position. And I'm like, okay, I get past the irritation. And then I'm like, all right, that just means I have more work to do to have those conversations about how this is an economic justice issue. It's a social justice issue. It's a reproductive rights issue. It's a criminal justice issue. I mean, look at the criminal justice system and how it targets our community. So it's all connected. And I am going to continue working to remind people of that. And I think Latino Advocacy Day, you mentioned in my bio, this coming year will be our 15th year of LAD, which is amazing, our quinceanera. I wish we could do it in person. But the way we've organized that event, which is an opportunity for our community from throughout the state, many of whom had never met their state rep or their state senator, to learn and understand all of the bills that go through that building, every legislative session that, again, impact, that have a human on the end, at the end of that decision-making, right? But oftentimes, they're not part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so we organize that around criminal justice, immigrant justice, economic justice, reproductive justice, and environmental justice, and education justice, which is something that we hadn't really done. But those are the issues that are impacting our community the most. And that's where we need to be learning and talking about them all together and stop working in silos because it's just, we're not getting anywhere. We're chasing our tails. And we also have to keep in mind that um, the division is engineered. When Maria mentioned how technology and social media, you know, has helped us become more divided, she's not wrong. And when we think about the intention behind the makers of these technologies, it wasn't always impure intentions, but the people who have the resources to control the media, to control the social media, to control the inventions and the innovations in communication, they have an agenda to maintain the current power structure. And so when we're educated on how the division is engineered, it's easy to recognize that the divide and conquer tactic is still at play. And it looks different every iteration based on what technology is at hand. But it's still a very small percentage of us who are controlling the mechanisms to keep us divided. And so when we know that we're not really against each other, the majority of us are experiencing the exact same thing. And this division is false, then I think that that helps us look beyond what is being fed to us and seeking out the commonalities, the similarities that we're not being given for a reason. Mm-hmm. So just to make that, I think you're saying a little more clear for everybody listening right now and who will listen in the future. The way I interpreted what you just said is that the average person, the average American, the average person living in the United States is impacted the same way by the divisive nature of the system itself, by social media, regardless 
of race and gender, yet individually or as groups, we feel that one group is treated better than the other, when in reality, that's not true. If you are poor and white and you're black and poor, you're probably having the same problems. Am I interpreting that correctly? I think the experience of poverty is probably similar. I think the barriers to getting out of poverty are compounded when you are a racial minority or an ethnic minority. But the majority of poor people in this country are white, and we never talk about that. We are just disproportionately represented amongst those who are poor. And so when we start clarifying and really crystallizing those things, it becomes easier to recognize that we're all being played, every single one of us. And our feeling of being played by each other is what the system depends on to keep going. I mean, I think, yes, we're all living in this. Nobody lives on a deserted island. Sometimes I wish I could. But I think because of where we are, nobody's starting at the same place. Yes, a lot of white people are poor, but they're going to have a different experience if they get pulled over than uh, someone with a heavy, heavy accent or someone who's black or brown. So... Yes, but it hits us differently, hence the disproportionality and the actual violence and death and worst of our society impacts different communities differently is I guess all I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for clarifying. I just wanted to make sure we got to the sort of the salient point on that. So the next question I want to ask directly to Maria, and of course, as usual, if any of you have anything to add, please feel free to. So Maria, I want to ask you about affordable housing. So affordable housing is a big issue across the country. I think it's particularly a big issue in Colorado. I mean, we're always talking about the rising cost of living and how we're basically the new San Francisco in terms of housing costs. And how did that happen? And what are we going to do about it? As the cost of living continues to rise, what do you see as the biggest obstacles to creating more affordable living for Coloradans? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, developers and business folks would say, oh, it's expensive land, it's expensive construction costs, you know, we have these prices rising. I just was giving a speech, I can't remember if it was yesterday or today, (laughs) but uh, that shows that here in the Denver metro area, you know, just between 2012 and 2018, housing prices increased by 72%, while our wages were stagnated at you know, 12%. So people would say wages, right? And even with COVID in place, we just hit an all-time record in Denver of our average housing price of $600,000. But what I would say is that the fundamental base of this is something we were just sort of touching on. And this is systemic and it's historic. We, many of us may know, or if you have, if you don't know, now's your time to know and do your research. But historically, we have a system from the last century and before of racial discrimination in housing policy that we are lucky enough or unlucky enough, really, I'm being sarcastic, to live in the legacy of today. So just as one example, there was this certain policy put in place called redlining, which basically drew banks and governments drew circles around certain areas where banks were not going to invest or provide safe credit, you know, affordable credit. Governments weren't going to, you know, they're just going to not invest in them at all. And really, honestly, with the intent of segregating 
our communities and they succeeded so much so and these policies were put in place you know 100 years ago basically almost 100 years ago basically today our number one gentrifying communities are those you just take that map from 1930 1940 in Dem metro denver those same most gentrifying communities are those communities you know the biggest amounts of displacement are happening there the biggest the highest rates of covid hospitalizations happening there you know every disparity you can think of under the sun is happening in those places. And I would say the biggest obstacle for creating affordable living in our, at least in our metro Denver area, are these archaic laws that were put in place very purposefully. And these are laws that had zoning in place so that we couldn't, we couldn't afford to have ownership of our own destiny in those areas. But not only did they create less affordability where we were relegated to live, they also locked us out of other communities by putting zoning in place so that, you know, you're not going to live over here where there's more access to whether it's cleaner air or better food or things like that. So, you know, what I think is one of the biggest obstacles in place are the rules, the policies we've put in place to make affordable housing less accessible. And it's not just zoning. I mean, the other thing that I'm seeing right now is access to safe credit, or it's not right now, it's been. <laughs> and we continue to, to live in that legacy. These are the biggest obstacles to creating access to more affordable living conditions. We're, we're picking, the system is been put in place to pick winners and losers before we can even have a chance at gaining that affordability. Mm. You know, your answer leads me to the next question around gentrification and affordable housing and gentrification, as you pointed out, go hand in hand. They're like, they're besties, essentially. Mm. You don't really have one without the other. And so it, it amazes me that just personally, that gentrification is such a hot button issue in the Denver metro area or anywhere where you have affordable housing issues because it means that it's locking out a lot of people from affordability, from being economic stability, because if you're, the price of where you live is high, that it's the majority of your income, then you're economically unstable for any emergency that might happen. So it amazes me that this is such a hot button issue, but why do you think that is? I'd love for Councilwoman Candy C. DeVaca to start us off here. Why is gentrification such a huge issue? What do you also see as a way through that? Ooh. Well, I think for me, it's an awakening or a tapping into an ancestral memory of colonization. It's neo-colonization. For someone to be able to have said, I don't like all of you living here, I'm moving to the suburbs, and then perform white flight, and then decide at the drop of a dime, well, actually, I want to come back, and I want it all back, and I'm taking it all back. And to have the power of the system, of the zoning laws, of everything that they need behind them to physically come back and take your land away from you. It taps into something very deep inside of us. And it's something that I don't know if we can get through if we don't change the system. Because what we know about this perfect system is that it works as it was designed to work. We change the names of things, we call things something else when it's performing the same function that it did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but it's the same function. It's performing the same function. And so for me, I believe we fundamentally need to change the structure, the system. To commodify housing, in my opinion, it's inhumane. You know, it's one of those things that should be a basic human right. 
to have a roof over your head, to protect yourself from the elements, to survive, whatever you do in that house, whatever you do with your work, that's a whole separate thing. But to be able to have access to a roof over your head, clean water, those are things that we should not see as a commodity. Those are things that we should work as societies, as developed nations to provide to every single person as a baseline. And in my opinion, that's the only way to get beyond gentrification in this moment, but also for future generations. Because if we do a couple of things here and there, create a linkage fee and a housing fund and build some affordable housing and change the definition of affordable and do all of those things that we've been doing over and over and over in different iterations with different names, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years down the line, we're going to have the exact same problem by a different name. And so right now, we have to change the system to decommodify housing in order to solve this problem for now and the future. Hmm. What's a curtain barrier to changing the system? I would say that there are the people who run the system, who engineered the system, are the ones who are benefiting from it. So why change it? It doesn't affect them. You know, we're watching the amount of people who are have pending evictions skyrocket. We're watching homelessness skyrocket. And to a rational person, you would see this and want to do something about it. But when you know that your money, your profit is unaffected, you have no incentive to do something about it. When you know that those people being evicted means that there's going to be a whole bunch of houses foreclosed on that are going to be cheap that you swoop in and scoop up, like, why would you? That's a great situation for some people. So, you know, it's a, we're in a moment of a moral reckoning and we need some truth and reconciliation here about what we're experiencing because many of us feel like we've just been gaslighted over and over for generations and we're tired of it. And I think uh, the comment right there, it's a moral reckoning. And somehow, well, we know how the system was put in place. I mean, we, we can point to laws, we can point to policies that were put in place that divide communities from each other. And somewhere along the line, Everyone, no matter what you look like, has bought into this idea that if you look a certain way, you have a certain accent, you eat a certain food, you earn a certain income level, that you, don't, you shouldn't be next to each other. I shouldn't have to see you every day. And we are in a moment where we have an opportunity to blow up that view of humanity and, and of each other. There are some cities that are doing amazing things around this. I mean, you look at Portland, Oregon, some other cities that are doing some other not so great things, but are doing wonderful things around housing and zoning. You know, there is some will and we have this moment to jump on that train to change the way we interact with each other, whether it's economic, racially, or otherwise, and really policy changes and law change, legislative changes is, is what it's going to take to make a large-scale impact. Because we can throw a ton of money at this, but we're not going to move the needle unless we change the underlying policies and laws. Is there anything currently that mm-hmm. Colorado voters should be aware of in terms of affordable housing? I would say Denver voters should be aware of a couple of big things right now. One, we're trying to change our group living zoning. And that is what we have now is a legacy of redlining. So it's illegal for more than two unrelated adults to live in a household in Denver. 
And city council is trying to change that because we know that is not the modern family. Two adults in a household doesn't even make sense when your rent is over $2,000 nowadays. People are doubling up. People are, they have different configurations of family. And so our zoning code needs to eliminate those discriminatory practices that exist in them. But we're also in the middle of budget season. And so our city council is going to vote on a budget that only puts aside 1% of our $1.4 billion budget for housing. And so that is you know, a place where we need all the pressure we can get on city council members to give an appropriate slice of the pie to housing. There are countries outside of our own that do social housing. This is not something that is brand new, that is unattainable. We can absolutely house everybody in this city and then focus on the rest of it because all of those people, once they're housed, can contribute to society in a different way. And that is the goal. That should be the goal. But changing those policies really depends on us getting people in those policymaker positions that want to change those policies in a radical way. So I guess the follow-up question to that would be for someone who's voting in Denver and is maybe just now learning about this policy issue that you're talking about, particularly the budget issue. How should they engage to talk to their council members about increasing the housing budget from 1% to something that seems more reasonable? And I think that would be a good conversation for wherever you live, because you're probably having these issues wherever you live. Yeah. Well, the best thing about um, local government is that, you know, we're all literally your neighbor. So your city council people, you can look up their cell phone numbers, you can look up their office, and you can reach out to them directly. They're actually going to read your email. They're actually going to see your phone call. And we meet every single Monday. Every Monday at 5 p.m., we're on Zoom. Anybody can tune in. There's public comment every single Monday from 5 to 5.30. And all you got to do is sign up for it on Fridays. You can sign up all throughout the weekend. You find us all on denvergov.org. So take advantage of that because, you know, we're the ones who have the most impact on your daily experience. And I would say local government is often the layer of government we pay the least attention to. Yes, thank you. I'm going to ask a question that I didn't initially intend on asking, um, but you just made me think about it in your answer. And thinking about the budget issues. So I think one thing that's often a disconnect for the average person is that the census really determines for most issues how much money there is in the pot to be divided amongst the different policy issues. So if housing is something that's very much a concern for you, then the census is what determines how much money each state is getting for all of those things. And right now, there's a fight happening as we speak on the federal level about whether or not the census is going to continue the time frame that it's intended to. So is it going to be stopped early preventing as accurate a possible account from occurring because every person that is counted actually represents a dollar amount that that state is going to get to be able to be dispersed for all of these different things. In that context, what do people need to know to take action on that right now? And please, anybody answer. I mean, for me, that's a perfect example 
a reminder of how elections matter and how important it is who is in leadership positions. I think, I feel like our education system has done us a disservice by not focusing much on civic education, like civics, like explain the three branches of government. I mean, I think we all remember learning that, but like, really, what does it mean? Like at the federal level, the state level, the municipal level, we have executive, we have legislative, we have judicial. All three of those are directly impacted by elections. So I think what's happening with the census is showing who is in the leadership position. I don't even like to say the person's name and the ability and power that that position has. But I also would say, so yes, learn more and connect with organizations who do this sort of thing and who, you know, who are engaged in advocacy and educating and informing our communities because really we want, for me and for Color, one of our many goals is to increase our community's capacity so that they can then have voice and connect. So they know, oh, the census, okay, this is who I contact when I want to talk about this. This is my congressional delegation. This is what it means to have a state delegation and city delegation. Like, it's so important to know who represents all of us and take that understanding and awareness and call to Candy's point, connect with your city council people, connect with your state senator, your state rep, connect with your congressional delegation. Even if their representation doesn't reflect your values, we, they still need to hear from you. And so that's just my additional plug, not only to vote, but to stay engaged and connected because what happens on November 3rd, those people, those issues are going to be appointing and implementing. Like the implementation is so important too, because again, it impacts all of us. And so the more that we know, the more that we are connected, then we can figure out how to grow from that and make it better. Or where do we need to protect? I mean, that's a huge question. And I think concern that we all should be having, God forbid, what if you know, we lose the presidential election again. It could happen. We, we didn't, I think I got too comfortable in 2016 thinking, oh, that could never happen. Well, here we are four years later. Like, let's think about what are our contingency plans either way, right? Because we should never stop staying engaged. Like we continue to grow, we protect, we pivot, but like learn and connect with people and ask questions and vote the entire ballot. Start at the bottom and work your way up because it matters. It totally matters. I would just piggyback a little bit on what Dusty said is like that engagement and that lobbying and doing all that stuff, I think can feel really overwhelming if you've never done it or you have no idea how to do it. There are tons of community organizations who have this down, right? Like if you're a member of a union, call me. We do labor lobby corps, right? If you're interested in bodily autonomy issues and reproductive rights, Dusty's your girl, right? There's like tons of organizations who are doing this work who have lobby days. Going and hanging out at the Capitol is actually pretty easy and a great way to talk to your representatives. So that would just be my plug for that. Also, like I'm a DHS worker. So like fill out your census. The census, the census, right? Because it's, it's what determines not only the flow of those dollars, but to things that are important to our communities, but also 
how many people we get to elect and who we get to elect um, to represent us. But what I wanted to say is I think there's a demystification that needs to happen. And I think a few of us have talked about how we haven't learned that our elected officials are human beings. They're these people and they know as much as we tell them to know about. And so whether it's, you know, a candidate running for office or I think equally as important, the second a new candidate gets into office, when you have an issue you care about, learn as much as you can, make sure you connect yourselves with organizations, just like um, Josette is saying, who can enrich your understanding of the issue. And then you gotta get in front of these elected officials. You'd be surprised how easy it is to tell a story that they can relate to, a human story, because at the end of the day, they should have <laughs> decided to take their office because they want to help human beings, right? You know, individuals and in their communities. So they need to understand specifically what's happening in your life. What's happening to your abuela? What's happening to you? What's happening to your kids? Those are the stories that you arm them with when they are going for a piece of legislation, when they are trying to change policy and they can justify it. They can say, this is the reason why I have to make this change. And so each and every voice that can be in front of them telling your personal story is power for our elected officials to make that change. And I think that there's this demystification, I'm making up a word. We need to demystify this process by you know, making us as citizens understand our power of our voice, right? To tell that story. This is the juice that our elected officials should be running on in terms of their, uh, you know, the changes they're making. Mm -hmm. Before we get to our, to our final questions, I do want to make sure that we take a couple of comments and questions from the audience. And somebody left more of a comment in the chat saying that they've Feel like they've struggled in the past with getting council member attention and feeling like the city was unwilling to hear them out as a citizen. What would your advice be to someone that feels like they've been trying to engage and just are not being heard? What options might be available to them? Run for their seat. It's as simple as that. That's how I ended up here. I was one of those people, you know, who had incredible organization, like across groups, across the city, people in solidarity on a range of issues, and we couldn't get our elected representative to listen to us. And that was what catalyzed my race is you get tired enough that you decide to run yourself or find someone else who will run. And Honestly, it's not as difficult as people make it seem, especially if you're a great organizer. It doesn't take some special talent or superpower to do the work. These people are ordinary people, some of them without even a lot of formal education. And so there's nothing to be intimidated by. And what we did before we ran was we changed the campaign, campaign finance rules. It unfortunately didn't apply to my race, but changing the way we finance campaigns is critical because that's often the biggest barrier, raising enough money to win. And so, I mean, if you don't want to run yet, start working on changing who can win by changing campaign finance and then finding people who will actually listen to the community and standing behind them and getting them across the finish line if it's not you yourself. And so, yes, that's one way, right? But public office isn't for everyone. So for someone who's just not going to do that, what would be one or two things that they could do to get their voices heard? You have to organize other people. The louder, the more people you can get to be saying the same thing that you're saying, 
the harder it becomes for your elected representative to not listen to you. But it takes work that, you know, the emails, the phone calls, there is a very real possibility that you won't be heard in the sense that your council person won't act on what you're asking them to do. And you have to, you have to get enough other people on your side to make them act, but don't stop. Don't stop the emails. Don't stop the calls. Don't stop showing up. Keep on going. It just becomes more difficult the more and more you persist. I would just add to that um, with anything, it's about relationships, right? So accountability is about relationships. And so if you create relationships with other like-minded people, then you engage your decision maker, elected official, you have a relationship with them. So it's, I can't overstress enough the importance of, of relationships and developing relationships and building trust and consistency and integrity and doing what you say you're going to do. And if you can't do it, then say that. Honesty, transparency, all of those things are so critical and important whether you're an elected official or whether you're a leader of an organization or whether you're a community member, because nobody can do anything alone and we all need each other and we need to continue talking and working because we have a lot of work to do, people. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. And I'll just say that as a former organizer, as formerly somebody that used to run campaigns, you know, I heard a lot about from people that felt like they weren't being heard. And it's tough and it's work. And I'll just say that democracy was never intended to be a spectator sport. You have to take action. You have to do something. And the more people, to Dusty's point, that you can get involved, as Councilwoman says as well, the more relationships you build, the more your voice is going to be heard. So I would just, wherever you land politically, I would encourage that because democracy doesn't stay democratic without your participation, without your active participation. I want to ask another question from the audience. Some of you answered it in the chat, but I want to make sure that everybody had a chance to hear your answers. So the question is, what do you view as more important or powerful, representative elected officials or community organizing and solidarity? I imagine this person means organizations, but what do you view as more powerful or as important? No, I think she meant community organizing. I know very well who that question came from. And in Pueblo, we really take a grassroots community organizing position to things. And we get as many different folks who are like-minded to sit at the table and talk about how we solve issues together. Um, And that's why I answered the way that I did in the chat that solidarity, I'm a union person, right? Like it says so right behind me. Like solidarity is hugely important. Because I can't, nobody's going to listen to just me. They just think mm-hmm. I'm a crazy person. But knowing that, you know, I've got 130,000 people behind me, you know, as the Colorado AFL-CIO makes that a much more powerful conversation. And we certainly start having those conversations on the ground. You don't have to be, you know, the leader of a labor organization to get you know, like-minded folks sitting at the table talking about how do we change this? How do we, you know, start some accountability work in our community? Or how do we make changes here at the city level or at the county level? Really, that's how it starts. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of that type of organizing because I think, you know, we draw in people with different talents who may not, you know, be members of any one organization. They just Some people like to make posters. Some people like to make phone calls. I hate making phone calls. So if they want to do that, I'm down with that. So it's really utilizing the different talents of the people that we have in our circles. And I'm here for it all day long. 
and I don't think it's an either or. Everyone has their strengths to Josette's comment about not liking phone calls. I'll remember that when I need to call you, Josette. I'll text you. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. That it takes all of our strengths right, to move. And how much better would that scenario be with all the people behind you when you have a representative or decision maker who knows and understands your issue? Like that's the perfect um, equation, right? And I think with regard to, so a lot of Colod's work focuses on policy work. Most of it focuses on the state level. And so we have worked intentionally to create those relationships, again, relationships with the Latino caucus, which is the first time our caucus has been the size that it is and the importance of the representation, like what that means for young people in our community to see people that look like them or that represent their issues or that, you know, that they can relate to in an elected office is so, that in itself is so important. But again, that's not where our work needs to stop. That's why that relationship continues. That's where the education, the explanation, the accountability, just because someone, we all know this, just because someone is brown doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the best person. I mean, look at Clarence Thomas. That's where, again, the relationship and all of it needs to happen together, I think. I hate to not have a different answer, but it's the truth. You, you have to have both. And if you have one, that elected official in place, you need to have the cadre, like I was saying, the cadre of human stories, the solutions of community. When you're organizing, I'm pretty confident many of the solutions that you want to propose to your elected officials lie in the community itself, right? You know, this is the barrier I face. Like, I just think of access to credit issues. This is the barrier I face. Oh, the, the elected official didn't even know that barrier was there. Well, this is how you could open, unlock the key for me to be able to purchase a home or start saving money or whatever it is, you know? And if you only, again, I, you know, I'm saying these are human beings that you're talking to, the elected officials, but you need a ton of them. So, you know, that's why it can't be one or the other. You know, you have to have other folks banging that same drum, providing the solutions, sharing the same stories and the same support for the same position. So... It's so right. You need both. And I think there's an order of operations to it, right? So I think that you need solid community organizing and solidarity to get the right elected officials. It's almost impossible to get representative. And when I say representative, I don't mean just people who match our skin. I mean people who match our worldview and our vision. And to get those people into office, I think it requires that organization and that solidarity. And you can't keep a person who is representative in office without that organization and solidarity. So get your organization and solidarity first and then get your person and then keep that person there and keep building the bench through that solidarity network so that you always have somebody who is representative of your worldview. Don't fall into the trap though of feeling like you have to pick one or the other. Systems of oppression don't pick a lane. They're operating in multiple lanes, full throttle at all times. And we as organizers need to be as sophisticated to match that power that we're going up against. 
Thank you everyone um, for such great answers. We are almost out of time. So I'm going to transition us to our final question. The final question is for everyone. So let's start with, we'll start with the councilwoman since you were the last one to answer. <laughs> so the final question is, if you had to pick one issue as most pressing right now, being that we are in a very important election season just coming up very soon, what would that issue be? And what is one or two things that you would like to see people do to get involved with that issue? My issue has been, always will be housing. And I think that right now in Denver, there are so many ways to fight for justice in that area at the local level, at the state level, very unlikely at the federal level. Right now we have a luxury developer who is our president. And so I think that at the local levels, we have to push our state to lift our rent control ban. We have to push that in the next legislative session because we cannot do anything at the local level that is meaningful to address that housing crisis here in Denver. In Denver, I think we absolutely have to do something about our homeless situation. And whatever that is, I need community's best ideas because it's such a polarizing issue that our simple solutions like repealing the camping ban is not the solution that's going to make the most impact. And so we need the best ideas coming forward. And you can call your council people, you can show up at a council meeting and talk to all of us every Monday, or you can start doing the research and the white papers to send to us if you don't want to be that involved. Whatever your lane is, your talent, pick it and contribute it. Maria, how about you? Would you like me to repeat the question? No, and it's going to be housing as well, because what I see is the catastrophic effect in so many different parts of our communities. And, and again, as communities of color, I feel like, you know, this is where we fall so far behind, right? So without housing, you can't protect yourself from COVID. You can't, you know, get your kids the best education they can have. You can't, we know that criminal justice outcomes are related to your stability. You know, what housing conditions you have, every outcome is related to housing. And so for me right now, that's what I'm seeing. And so for me, that's my priority. And in terms of what you can do, I think we've addressed some of this. We've touched on some of this. This is such a complex issue. I think Councilwoman Sidabaka, one of the things that she's mentioning, it's, it's like you, it's like whack-a-mole. <laughs> you know, you hit one issue and that you feel like is a symptom or a, you know, is where the pain point is and you realize it's further down the line in the system. We got to bring all hands on deck because housing is so complex. That system, those policies that have been put in place, we need to have as many people involved in helping create those solutions, whether it's how we use our land, how we decide to apportion out money for different priorities for different communities. It's really about getting involved and getting your voice heard around housing issues. And before the next person goes, you don't even have an address to send a ballot to if you don't have a roof over your head. And people can get stuff sent to shelters, but shelters are closed in in a lot of cities right now. So this is huge. Figuring out how to get people to understand, you know, that even if they don't have a house, they still also have voting power. Thank you. Josette, would you like to go next? Yes, absolutely. So 
to nobody's surprise, I'm going to say labor issues. So I think those are layered, right? Because we're in the middle of a pandemic and the way we are rewarding our frontline workers is with furloughs, with layoffs, and with uncertainty about the future of their jobs. So that is first and foremost, I'm a public sector worker, so that is continually on my mind. But when I say working people's issues and labor issues, I want to go a little deeper than that. And I want to talk about making sure that our folks who are working in meatpacking plants are safe. I want to say that making sure our folks who work in the hospitality industry continue to bring in a paycheck for their families and that we get those folks back to work in the safest way possible. So it's like a complete layer of issues, but that's like the umbrella that I know and it's the umbrella that I live in is the working people's issues. So, I mean, no surprise to anyone. I think a huge threat that we're facing right now is that bodily autonomy and the tax on our reproductive autonomy, which again impacts economic justice issues, all of these other issues. And the pending Supreme Court justice nominee has a huge, huge impact on not just reproductive rights issues, on everything good that the Supreme Court has upheld. All of those, all of the issues that I think we all care about in common are at risk. Voting rights, LGBTQ, everything good in this world is at risk. And that freaks me out a little bit. So I say one thing you can do about that is connect to your congressional representatives. Senator Bennett, contact, you know, the sitting congressional delegation. The next thing is vote on this election, the entire ballot. We have a Senate race that is up. We need to take back the Senate, the U.S. Senate, because of the power that they have over the Supreme Court justice nominations, over a lot of things, decisions, the sense, you know, it's all connected. And to Josette's point, thank you for reminding me, vote yes on the paid family leave um, ballot initiative, vote no on 115, which is an abortion ban, and vote on all of the DA races, like the connection and intersection around criminal justice and the power that DAs have. Like we as uh, progressives, and I, this is something I want us to be better at, is that third branch of government. Like there are so many things that the judicial branch impacts DAs, I mean, you know, and again, disproportionately impacting our communities. Like we need to have voices in who's getting elected in those seats, because at some point they will become a judge. And then at some point they will be on the federal bench. And then at some point they will be considered for the Supreme Court. So vote the entire ballot, connect with people that you trust, organizations that you trust. There's going to be a ballot issue guide that Colorado Action Fund, Working Families Party, and maybe seven other POC racial justice organizations are putting together. You know, there's a lot of organizations, and I know that labor always puts a ballot guide together. Connect with people and ask questions and vote, vote, vote. Thank you. Thank you to all of the panelists for your incredible answers and for the work that you're doing and for joining us tonight. I know you could be doing a million other things with your time right now. We appreciate you so much. Same thing to all of our attendees that showed up tonight and for your great questions and comments in the chat. Again, we appreciate you. We know you could be spending your time anywhere else and you chose to spend it with us. And we hope that this was a valuable resource for you in thinking about 
what's important right now, and how you can get involved in whatever way feels most reasonable and authentic to you. So thank you for everyone. Thank you to History Colorado for creating the space to have this event tonight. So appreciative of you. And for the entire year of La Chicana program, it's been amazing. I loved going to the events when that was still a thing. <laughs> and I look forward to attending History Colorado again in the future when that's a thing again. <laughs> and uh, hopefully COVID is, is just a bad memory for us all soon. I want to let you all know to please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or just head over to That's What She Did podcast to learn more about us. We will be back for season six of the show starting October 16th where we are amplifying women writers across all genres whose work intersects with today's social issues. We have some great authors. We're actually giving away their books to audience members for free. So subscribe now so that you don't miss it. Plus the replay of this incredible night will be on season six so you can get it there as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again from History Colorado. Our mission is really to study, to understand the past, to create a better future. And I'm just so grateful for you all to share your story and to encourage us all in our civic activity and to help create that better future. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tanjia, for leading us to night.